Stan, you're on the line with us. Well, let's see if he's there, Stan. I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, we Loud. can. Hi, welcome. Welcome, Stan. It's good to be with you. Hello, so, Stan. Stan. How are you? 
This I'm is Lamont. Well, I'm Matthew. And um, Stan, I'm going to introduce you briefly from some of your bio, and then we're going to ask you a whole bunch of questions, if you that's, don't mind. That's good. Yeah, I shot you okay. the questions. I assume you got them. Hey, I'm I on my them. cell phone, and I have good coverage, but is it better if I plug some headphones into the cell phone, or does it matter? You sound good to me. What do you think, Lamont? Yeah, I hear him fine. Okay. okay. Sounds right. good to me. All right. If if we if we have a problem, we'll just we'll let you know. But it sounds pretty clear okay. to me. All right. I just got it on the so, phone. Uh, it's easier for me. This is pretty clear. If you stay with this, we'll be okay. Okay. Super. All right. So I'm going to introduce you. Uh, this is Dr. Stan Beecham, who is a sports psychologist and director and founding member of the Leadership Resource Center in Atlanta, Georgia. Since 1998, almost 20 years ago, Beecham has been helping organizations maximize performance and realize the full potential of their human resources. Senior executives utilize Dr. Beecham's expertise to guide them through the process of selecting and developing high-performance teams. In addition to his coaching and consulting engagements at the Leadership Resource Center, he is also a professional speaker, writer, and committed to advancing the science of leadership development. And Dr. Beecham has also written a book called Elite Minds, and we're definitely going to have a little conversation about that today. Um, Welcome, Stan. We're glad to have you. Thank you. It's good to be with you guys. Now, I'll ask you a question. usually ask people who come on the show more than once, but I feel led and inspired today. Is there anything that you would like for us to know about you, our listeners to know about you that uh, is not in your bio or something special that you'd like to share? Well, I think that just I want people to know that the the things that they're struggling with or have struggled with are the same things that I am or have struggled with. and, And much of my work has, you know, been informed by my own personal experience as well as, the work that I've done with collegiate professional Olympic athletes and then uh, business executives. And the, the the thing I want people to understand is that we're kind of all in this thing together. <laughs> okay. Well, that, definitely, that definitely speaks volume right there because you're just not talking to talk. You've personally walked the walk. So that, that means a lot. Yeah. yeah and Lamont, you, know, you got to walk that walk every day. <laughs> Lamont loves it when people talk like that. It gets them all excited. Stan, are you from you from Georgia? Yeah, yeah, I'm a homeboy. Uh, born and raised in Atlanta, right outside of Atlanta. What town? I live in Roswell, which is a suburb north of Atlanta. Okay. But I spent a good number of years in Athens, where the University of Georgia is. I was the, okay. the sports psychologist for the athletic department back in the 90s there. Wow. And okay. I, I still work with several of the teams. I used to go over to Milledgeville to visit my first wife. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, Milledgeville's getting on now. It's got, a, it's got a pretty big school there, Georgia College. I'm getting I'm getting yeah. my mind all excited here talking about ex-wives. No, I just want oh, to yeah, ask don't go the there. question. That's a whole nother show, huh, Stan? (laughs) I told you I was going to ask some pretty interesting questions tonight, you know. But I I don't have a whole lot of secrets left. 
Yeah, I, look, I, I got a question because you know I'm kind of slow, but what would a what would a, a a sports figure need with a psychologist? Well, it gets into how much of the game is about your physical skill and ability, and how much of it is about your mental and emotional state, which is your ability to access that physical skill, right? So we generally think of these great athletes, you know, the Michael Jordans, the LeBrons are these incredible physical specimens, which they are. But when you start looking at sport closely, what you'll see is you'll see a fluctuation in performance, right? So even the best folks or people who are really talented, they have good days and bad days. And when people start playing at a high level, they want to play really consistently and they want to be able to access their best most of the time. And that's the mental part of the game right there. Right? Okay. Would you say? I mean, at, say, after you after you have the skill and ability, you got to be able to get to it and get to it consistently, or get to uh-huh. it under pressure. And would that's you say, where Stan, most that uh, the vast majority of what you're talking about is mental, and and it's the percentage is higher on what a person learns how to do with their mind than their bodies. I mean, are are you or can you balance it out like that? Well, what I'm saying is, let's just let's just take a a, a a given group of people. Let's say we're talking about Division One football players, or Division One okay. basketball players, or NBA basketball players. Within that group of people, you've got a certain skill set that's pretty consistent, right? With a few exceptions. And so the question then becomes: Is who's going to win, and who's going to win consistently? And the people that win consistently are the ones who can access their best performance most consistently. This is when we talk about getting in the zone or being in the flow or just the team working well together. And, and those are mental constructs. They're, they're belief systems. They're emotional states. And mm-hmm. so you, you follow me? Most athletes understand that the people that they're competing with are, are close to them or equal to them in physical ability or skill. All right. And so if you and I are equal in talent and ability, you know, if you're in a better mental state than I am, then you're going to win more frequently than I am. Or you're going to do well under pressure. And so it really is about teaching people how to pay attention to their, their thought process, their emotional process, and how that plays out and affects what they're able to do or not. And, and that's what mu- that's what much of sports psychology is about, and then okay. using mental techniques to get yourself in an ideal situation. So when somebody screams at an athlete, tell them to get their head into the game. That's kind of like what they're talking about, right? Well, what you find is is that say for a given athlete in a sport, there's a lot of things that can distract you from the task at hand. Okay, let me give you an example. So let's just stay with basketball since that's going on right now. NBA basketball player, you're shooting a free throw. What's interesting is the guys who are really good free throw shooters, they don't go up to the line and think about, hey, I got to make this free throw or I can't miss it, okay? They don't even think about the outcome. They just go through a process and a routine that they get comfortable in because they know if they can get comfortable, they're going to make it 80 90% of the time. When guys are struggling and not playing well, they think, well, I just missed the last two. I got to make this one. The actually thinking about making or missing the shot is actually a distraction from shooting the shot. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And it's the same with winning. You know, when a team is playing really well and winning, 
you don't think about winning or losing. You just play the game. But when a team's struggling, they think, well, we got to win this game or we can't lose another one. So even the outcome, whether you make the shot or win or lose a game, that's a distraction from the from the task the task at hand or what you're trying to do. And so it's teaching people how to do that. I could understand that. It seemed like the way that you were describing that you'd be actually putting additional pressure on yourself. And yeah, but the pressure would... is the thought, right? The, 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 right. The, 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 when people talk about pressure, it's, it's, it's really a thought process, right? If you tell yourself, I have to do something well and I have to do it now, you could argue that that thought would lead to some tension in your body, right, which is the pressure. Correct. So what you find is that when athletes are really at their best, when they're in the zone, they're not thinking. <laughs> there's there, there's very little there's a very little thought process. There's very little going on in the mind. When you're doing a lot of thinking and you're an athlete, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. It seems like you'd be too busy thinking about the game opposed to playing the game. Exactly, exactly. I mean, when you're really in the middle of something and you're really in the zone, and you're really in the flow of what you're doing, there's nothing to think about. You you get out of your way, and you just automatically, naturally know what to do next. I mean, that's the part of the practice, right? When you when you practice mm-hmm. doing something over and over again, your, your body knows how to do it. But thinking about it will actually interfere with what you've already trained yourself to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I you can know, see the important. I can see the importance of your work there, you know, teaching the athlete how to get out of their own way. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I so think that's a lot of times it's not about too. doing more, it's about doing less. Yeah. That's right. the irony of the whole thing. When you try to do more, you usually make it more difficult for yourself. I think that's applicable to a lot of things that have to do with uh, physical coordination. I remember when I was first – Learning how to drive a car, um, I had yeah. the same kind of difficulties. It, you know, you had to focus on holding the steering wheel and pressing the brake and changing the gears and all of that. And right. most of the time, most of the time now, I think most of us who drive cars for you know on a regular basis, we don't think about it. We just it's time to come to cor- turn the corner. We turn the corner. We don't think about how to hold the steering wheel or which hand to put up. Or and if you do start thinking about it, it puts you in a bad spot. Exactly. And it's the same with everything. But people, yeah, that's a great example driving the car because most people had this experience, especially when you're on the interstate, right? Yeah. And you drive down the road and you realize for the next, and, and you just kind of, you know, kind of wake up and you realize, man, I just drove for 15 minutes and I have no idea what was going on. You right. know, you were just, you know, your mind was just quiet. Or maybe you were listening to a song and you're really into the song. Mm-hmm. And then you sit there, and you so you have this experience that the car was driving itself, right? What's yes. interesting when when you look at athletes who are in the zone or in the flow, there's a couple of things that they'll tell you, and one of them is the experience feels effortless. That they don't, even though they may be exerting a lot of physical effort, they don't experience themselves as trying hard. And when you think about all the things that we tell kids when we're coaching them, you know, like give 110% and put forth more effort, there's some benefit of that when a kid might be training. Say you're in the weight room, right? 
you know, or you're, you're, you're out running trying to get in shape. But when you're actually playing the game, if you're experiencing yourself putting forth a lot of effort, that's usually not a good thing. So you've got this book, uh, Elite Minds, and I'm guessing it's related to what we're talking about now. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so I uh, I wrote the book with really two audiences in mind, the, the athletes that I work with as well as the, the, the business people, leadership folks that I work with. And what I wanted to demonstrate in the book is how there's some core fundamental mental processes that affect all of us from things as basic as our belief systems and what we believe about ourselves and what we're capable of, you know, all the way down to some very specific things. And so that was the intention is to, is to write a book about the mental aspect of performance. Because if you think about sport and business, they're both a performance arena, right? I mean, business people, they get measured. There's a scorecard, their expectations on, what they do and how well they do it and, and the inherent pressures that come with that. And so what I really wanted to do in the book is kind of share some of the things that I've learned from working with both of those populations, athletes and business people, and basically let them know you're playing, you're all playing the same game. The game is a little bit different, but the key aspects of the game are the same. And so I, I really spent a lot of time of talking about, you know, what we do mentally, to help us and the things that we're doing mentally that get in the way and hinder us. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, we're, we're, we're all, most all of us are in some type of performance arena where what we do gets measured and then there's a, you know, there's a result and then there's a, you know, we're affected by that result. And, um, and so that, that was really the essence of, of what the book was about. I, I've self-published it back in 13, the book did really well. And then last year, McGraw Hill picked it up. And so we did a second edition and I added a lot of new material and that book came out in September and it's doing well. So it's been, it's been really fun to, you know, listen to people say what parts of the book really affected them. Well, what does it mean? Better is the enemy of best. Yeah. So what generally what we, tell people in, in performance environments is we, you know, we, we live in a culture that's obsessed with better, right? You see it in pretty much every commercial, you know, that this is better than this, or if you use our product, you're going to be better. You know, when I go into businesses, they talk about how do we do it better. When you go to practices and listen to coaches talk to kids, they're talking about, you know, let's do it better. We got to do it better. And the, the problem with, with better is it's, it's a future-based concept, right? The, the better is something you do in the future. You with me? Yes. And the, prob- and the problem with that is everything that you do takes place in the present moment in the now. So the reality is I can't do better right now. All I can do is what I'm capable of doing. And so what I want people to understand is what you can do right now and what you consist- can consistently do is your best. And instead of asking people to do better, what we really need to be saying is do the best that you can. Because the reality is you can't, be, you can't do any better than your best. So for most people, this concept of doing better, what really sits beneath that is a, a lot of people, I'm talking about really talented athletes or really successful business people, they have this sense that they carry around with them all the time that I'm not good enough yet, Right. 
And if I'm not good mm-hmm. enough right now, I need to be better. And okay. what I want people to understand is you are good enough right now. And what you're good enough right now to do is to do your best, and that's all you can do. But once you start chasing better, right, you know, I mean, you think about most people's lives where they say, you know, as soon as I graduate from college, you know, then my life is going to start. And so you graduate from college and you go, well, now I got to get a job. And so then you get a job. And then, well, now I got to get a better job. And, you know, now I got to get a house. And now I got to get a bigger house. <laughs> and, you know, and, and the problem with better is you never get there. <laughs> you chasing the tail. <laughs> yeah, right. And and so I see a lot of people who really, you know, in the eyes of the world, you might say have been very successful, but yet they don't really feel good enough yet, and they don't feel accomplished yet. And this is part of the 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 the, the problem that I see with the better model is, you know, if I'm pursuing better, at what point do I become good enough? And what's interesting, a lot of people, what they teach is, or what they'll say is, is that, you know, once you quit trying to be better, then you're going to become complacent and the competition is going to pass you up, right? So the belief is okay. you've got to always be, you got to always be unsatisfied. You've got to always be hungry because once you become, you know, content and peace with, at peace with yourself, then you're going to get beat up in a competitive arena, right? This is what we teach. And I don't think it's true. In fact, not only do I think it's not true, I think it's really hurtful. And so I've, saying, I've got a whole chapter where I really talk about that. Stan, I mean, what you're saying makes like, perfect, perfect sense the way that you're explaining that. But it seems like right. the difficulty would be living in a society that preaches just the opposite. Yes, yes. And so what we have is we live in a culture where a large percentage of us, and I'm talking about people who have jobs and do well, okay? I'm talking about, you know, Division One athletes and professional athletes are doing well. And I sit and talk with these people. And, and, and what's interesting to me is a large percentage of them who have never felt good enough, you know, that no matter how hard they work and the success they have, they just don't feel any joy from it. And, you know, my feeling is, is what's the use of going out there and busting your tail every day and working hard and you never get any satisfaction from it? And we have a lot of this going on. So, so I just I want, I want people to understand that your best is good enough. And to be honest with yourself about when you really are putting forth a best effort, because when most people, when you start talking about that, you know, and say, well, is this your best effort? They'll say, well, probably not. Well, then do the best that you can. Not so much because somebody's going to make money from your best effort, but I think that when we start functioning at our highest level, our full potential, we, we, we number one, we feel better about ourselves, but we also enjoy what we're doing more. Uh, Stan, do you feel like a lot of um... – business people or athletes find that the the hardest thing they can accomplish is learn how to get out of their own way that that's it man yep see i well here's what i've found i've i have found that there are two fundamental beliefs that people have that pretty much dictate the quality of their lives okay the first one is a belief about self and there's two beliefs that we have about ourselves i'm i'm just going to make this very simple one is i believe that i'm good enough and then the other belief is I'm not good enough, okay? What I'm telling you is that most of the people that we know, that we hang out with, people that do well, their fundamental belief about themselves is that they're still not good enough. 
this is why I need to be better, right? This is the this is what sits underneath the better model is why do you need to be better? And the answer is because you're not good enough yet. Mm-hmm. And when you when you think about performance, especially at a high level, like I said earlier, all performance takes place in the now. Okay, I can't be any better right now. What I can be right now is I can do my best. And this is what we need to start asking of ourselves: is do the best you can, you know. And if you're the boss at work or you're coaching athletes, that's what we need to ask them: is do the best that you can. It's going to be okay. But but this better model really pulls the insecurity that people have, which is I'm not good enough. And so this is why we have people. I mean, you look at our culture right now where the, you know, we've got more money. We got more stuff than we've ever had as Americans, but we got more addiction. We got more depression. We got more sleep disorders than we ever had. Right. So we Mm -hmm. keep accumulating all this stuff. Right. Now we got storage units because you got so much stuff that doesn't fit in your house anymore. Right, but you got to take an antidepressant and then something to get to sleep at night, and and it's all pursuing you know this more and better model. Because then you got to go so out that, and get a bigger house now. There you go, because your buddy's got one, and now you don't feel good enough anymore. Exactly, you're keeping up with the Joneses. You're trying to keep exactly. up with constantly comparing yourself. And you, but you never get there, right? So that's what I'm saying. This Never. this first belief is a belief of self, right? And that's what I ask people to think about. You, you know, when you, you know, our, the, we we think in words, and so most of us we constantly have this dialogue, this conversation with ourselves in our head, which is basically what thinking is, right? It's a conversation you're having, and and it, mm-hmm. and it continues twenty four seven, except for when you go to sleep. But you're constantly thinking. And so what I want people to be aware of is when you think about yourself, is your fundamental belief. You know, I'm good enough, I'm okay, everything's fine. Or is your fundamental belief about yourself, i got to get better because I'm not good enough yet? And then the second thing I want people to be aware of is when we think about the future, is your fundamental belief about the future that it's going to be okay, it's going to work out? Or is your fundamental belief about the future that I don't know if it's going to work out? Maybe it's not going to work out, I'm unsure, right? And that's, that's really what anxiety or worry is, right? It's future-based. And so, so we live in a culture if, right now. I'm if just you're saying we live in a culture somebody, right now where 20% of us have an anxiety disorder, which is, I mean, we walk around always worried about what's going to happen next. But Stan, if you're coaching somebody who has the negative side of that, if they think they're not good enough, what, yeah. well, how do you help that person? Well, the, you know, the, 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 the thing that's most helpful for most people is just telling themselves the truth about themselves, right? If you can quit lying to yourself, quit BSing yourself, and just tell yourself the truth, that's the starting point. So when I'm talking to a person well, who has wait, a fundamental wait, wait, wait belief. Wait now. I've been, I've been telling that to Lamont for like eight, nine months so far. I need some <laughs> help on this one. <laughs> well, what, what, here's, what, here's what happens. When you get a person who says, yeah, I don't believe I'm good enough, and I've never felt that way. Then what I want to know is, well, how, how's that working for you? Well, it's not working so well. Well, let, let's try a different model. And the different model is, is what if you're wrong about yourself, right? So most of us walk around with some with this belief that I have some fundamental flaw, that something's wrong with me. You know, I have some core problem. But what if that's not the problem? You know, what if your problem is you think you've always had a problem? <laughs> so you're asking, you're asking people to challenge some of their uh, conclusions or deep beliefs about who they think they are, right? 
Yes. What what most people will realize when they get into this stuff is that most of which most of what they believe about themselves is adopted from someone else's belief system. So I mean as kids when we're coming up as children, we adopt the belief system of our parents, of our teachers, of significant others, right? Because when you're two or three years old, you don't know what you are. You don't know if you're good enough or bad. And so someone tells you, you know, you don't know if you're pretty or skinny or ugly or fat. You know, you people tell us all this stuff, and so we believe it. And what I ask people to do when I work with them is is go back and, and, and rethink these things for yourself. You know, these core beliefs that you have about yourself, where did that come from? And frequently people realize, yeah, I believe this. And I don't even know why I believe it, but I've just always believed it. <laughs> but that's where you got to start. you got to start with that awareness. You know, you can't just say to somebody who's worried, hey, don't worry about it, you know, or someone who doesn't feel good enough to say, oh, yeah, you're good enough, you're fine. They have to go back and do that work themselves. And if you've got the strength and courage to do that, you'll you'll really benefit from it. I got, I got one for you, Dr. Beecham. How, okay. how would you – Talk to an athlete that's actually a phenomenal, a phenomenal athlete, and really have his head together. But he happens to be on a team that consistently is not doing well. Right. So and with that getting, person, he's getting, I, he's getting his, he's getting his, he's not doubting himself, his his ability. But then he's looking at other athletes with similar ability to his. And he sees that they're doing well, but, you know, they have a whole different support mechanism. How, how would you deal right. with that athlete? Well, you know, athletes that, that play on a team, one of the things I want them to realize is they have a big influence on each other. And, and, and to be honest about that, what you have with a lot of professional athletes is they try to act like, hey, nobody can mess with me or nobody can, you know, say or do something to bother me. You with me? Yes, and that that's that's just simply not the case. And so when I'm working with, when I'm working with teams, I sit with the whole team, and the first thing I want them to do is acknowledge that, you know, we as human beings we are social animals, and what that means is is that we are strongly affected by the people around us, even people we may not like or people we may not even want to be around us. But the fact of the matter is, we're going to be strongly influenced by each other. And so to stop and be really cognizant about, so what is the effect? What is the influence that we want to have on each other? I mean, this is this whole thing around teamwork, right? right. When you think about a, a successful team, the reality is is that the athletes have a positive influence on each other. Mm-hmm. And when you've got a bunch of superstars who aren't playing well, the fact of the matter is they're not. They're actually, they're actually competing against one another. You follow me? And I see yes. this a lot in businesses, too. Let's say the three of us work together for the same company, and we're all kind of at the same level of management, right? And we realize that there's going to be an opportunity for one of us to get promoted to the next level. A lot of times what will happen is we'll compete against each other more than we would the competition, you know, that's outside the company. And I see this all the time within companies as well as teams that we're actually competing against our own teammates, or our own coworkers, and we got guys like Matthew trying to bring the boss coffee and donuts and stuff. Yeah, and that messes <laughs> up for the rest of us. Doesn't it? 
That's funny. I was going to ask you, I, I really do understand the thing about uh, teams. I think that the synergy that goes on with teams, and I was thinking about the Super Bowl and, and the last half of the Super Bowl and what happened to the Patriots in the first and the second. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you weren't part of, you know, you don't know people who are in that, but I'm wondering what happened at halftime with that team that switched that, uh, that energy around because, you know, I, when I came to the end of the, came to the first half, I thought, boy, this, they could, they're going to kill these people. Now, you know, it, it yeah, um, is a crazy game. What and, and and of course, one of the things that we learned about the Patriots is is that they always believe they can win. And I, I can tell you what I've learned from years of watching competitive sport, and it's simply this: most games are lost, not won. Okay. And to be to become a winner, the first thing you have to learn how to do is to not sabotage yourself. Yeah, you with me? And yeah. when I when I mean this, when I talk about sabotaging, is the stuff that we do that keeps us from playing to our full potential. And so most of the athletes at the at the at the collegiate level, they still do things to kind of get in their own way and mess themselves up. And so what I say is, before we start trying to beat somebody else, let's first learn how to stop beating ourselves. Okay. So what are the things that you do individually to sabotage your own success? And when you can learn how to do that, to quit beating yourself, then you can really begin to learn how to win. But but most athletes and most teams, they, they're still beating themselves. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I think it's a great point. Great point. Dr. Beecham, that seemed like it also applies to uh, entertainers as well because the the anxiety that you feel right before you go on the stage. You know, nobody wants to be a failure. Nobody wants to be a flop. You want to do your best performance. So you get all this bent up in your head. Look, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to be fantastic. I'm going to be out there and do great. And your heart gets to pumping something like like you want to jump out of your chest, you know, just an adrenaline rush. And I'm like... Yeah. You know, after you, and I know relating to myself, you know, after I open my mouth a couple of minutes, it kind of goes away. But yeah. that initial feeling, I mean, how, how do you control that? Because we all want to do well. And it's like the athletes, yeah. and I can imagine they yeah. all want to do their best. They all want to do good. Right. They go out there and dro- drop the doggone ball. You're absolutely right. So what, what's going on in the example that you gave is, is that when you when you have a big performance or game coming forward, your body is physically going to prepare for that. And basically what happens is it's what we call the sympathetic nervous system arousal, where you start getting that adrenaline running through you, right? And you start getting the butterflies and that tingly feeling. And that's actually your body becoming chemically different. I, I refer to that as kind of being on high test gasoline or rocket fuel. Okay. So when you start having that physical experience, you can interpret it one of two ways, right? You can say, uh-oh, I'm getting nervous, I'm getting butterflies, I'm getting anxious, right? That's not going to help you. Right. But if you say to yourself when that happens, hey, I'm getting ready, okay? I'm getting, I'm getting pumped up, I'm getting juiced, I'm getting ready to go. You follow me? And you, and you don't resist that. Mm-hmm. Then you can use it. Because the fact of the matter is that adrenaline is in our systems for a reason. It's been in there for, you know, millions of years and this is the stuff that helps you run away from the wild animal you know or when you're in a hand-to-hand <laughs> combat with the enemy you know this is the stuff that lets you fight 
So that 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 adrenaline rush that you feel, if you don't resist it and work with it, it will help you. You follow me? Mm-hmm. But most people are afraid of it because they didn't ask for it. They feel like it just kind of came upon them, right? And what you need to understand as an athlete or performer is this is going to help me. And it will. Wow. That's powerful stuff right there, Dr. Beecham. Good stuff. Well, when you were talking about how people sabotage themselves, yeah. uh, I like that line. How did you say it? Uh, most games are lost. Not, not one. Is that the way you said it? Yes. Yeah, and I really believe okay. that. And I think that when you start looking at sport through that lens, you know, I mean, there there are times when, you know, one team is continuing to play well and somebody just does something phenomenal and wins the game. But usually what you see is that, you know, one team or one of the individuals will mess up, right? You know, I work a lot with mm-hmm. tennis players, you know, and in tennis they talk about unforced errors, right? Yeah. And so most, you know, you know, most of the tennis players that are listening to the show – when they go out and play, you know, in their neighborhood or their Alta League or whatever it is, you know, what they find out is that most of the most of the points are won because somebody hit a bad shot, not because somebody hit a winner. Yeah. You follow me? That's good. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I was thinking about it as you were talking that uh, this kind of point of view actually applies because I, I, I do a lot of couples working with couples. And right. um, it applies to marriages, too. I mean, I think that people sabotage Absolutely. their own great relationships and they end up being divorced. And they usually don't want to blame somebody else. But in truth, when I work with couples, I watch people sabotage themselves all the time and set themselves yeah. up for something that, yeah. you know, they come from that uh, I'm not good enough point of view. And then they make it come true. Yes. And then or, they wonder what happened. Yeah, or there's a fear that the other person is going to leave them, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like, well, since you're going to leave me, let me just go ahead and give you a reason to leave me, right? Yeah. Or that's, that's... or or, or the intimacy gets too much for them, and mm-hmm. and and they sabotage the relationship that way. There's a lot yes. of people who are listening to the show, and what they fundamentally believe about themselves is they don't deserve to be loved. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is they find themselves in a relationship with someone who loves them, then they say, well. I'm unlovable, and since you love me, there must be something wrong with you. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? That's right. That's exactly right. It happens a lot. And then they and complain about being alone again. Well, yeah. we have to go back to what you said in the beginning, is that people have to start this by being able to tell themselves the truth, meaning I'm doing this to myself. How did, How is that affecting the outcome? You know, my assumptions, my yeah. attitudes about myself and how do they, and how do I make that choice differently? Uh, if I come into a relationship or I come into a basketball game or uh, playing tennis and I think I'm not good enough, I'm going to prove myself right, usually. That's exactly what we do. I mean, everybody's heard of the self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So we have we have core or fundamental beliefs about ourselves, and we're not conscious of them, but what we do is we go through our life and and acting in such a way to reinforce those beliefs, and 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 then and then stay frustrated and angry because things don't work out for us. What, what, well, what's I, interesting I is we you, generally think somebody's doing it to us, but we're actually doing it to ourselves. 
Well, I want to ask you a question about something you just said, and that is when you said people are not conscious of it. And I'm wondering when you're doing work with athletes or business people, how difficult is it for you to get them to start to actually believe in the reality of having an unconscious mind that affects their performance? Yeah, you know, most people, if if they're if they're really struggling and they're really hurting, that'll actually open them up to be curious. But if you've got a person who's still doing okay, you know, they haven't been beat up enough, mm-hmm. they're going to be very they're going to be very most people will be pretty defensive of their own belief system, right? They want to argue with you. Mm-hmm. And what I find is is that there's a certain amount of bumps and scrapes that we get on ourselves. And after that happens, then we become curious. And and a lot of times when I'm working uh, with folks, you know, it's because they're going through a difficult time. And I find those people to be more open than someone who's actually having some success. Oh, that's true. That's definitely true. Yeah. I mean, there's okay. exceptions to that rule, but, you know, you, you tell somebody that they're getting ready to get kicked off the team or they're getting ready to lose their job and all of a sudden – you know, their ears will perk up and go, you know, what's the problem? What do I need to do? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Well, I, I find yeah. that it's 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 hard sometimes to get people to believe that there are things that are powerful forces that affect them that they don't know about. And sometimes people think everything I know about myself is all there is to know about me. And well, most people, that's, yeah, most people don't really know themselves. They haven't really sat with themselves long enough to to um, to really have that awareness of self. And what I mean by that is that we live in a culture that we have so many things to distract us from ourselves, right? So, I mean, you do your job all day long, then you come home and you turn the TV on and you sit in front of it. And and we just, we don't we don't sit with ourselves anymore. You know, we don't really sit quietly and just observe ourselves. You know, one of the things that mm-hmm. I've found to be really powerful that I teach people I work with is for them just to come to the realization that you are not your thoughts and you are not your emotions, right? I mean, if you think about the language, most people will say, they'll say, I am sad. They won't say, you know, I feel sad. Most times they'll say, I am sad or I am depressed mm-hmm. or I am anxious. Right. And we are so identified with our thoughts that we we become our thoughts. In other words, people who are chronically depressed, part of what's going on is they have a thought pattern that's a pretty unhappy thought pattern, Mm -hmm. which is filled with things of, you know, no, you're no good, you're terrible, you can't do anything right, you screw up everything you get involved in. And so one of the things that I teach people to do is to just observe their own thoughts. And what will happen is when you'll do that, you'll think, you know, of all the things that I could be thinking of right now, isn't it interesting that I picked this one? Right? Mm-hmm. So even how we think, it's habitual. And when you, get, when you get in a pattern of thinking, I'm not good enough, I can't do anything well, you know, I'm going to mess this up somehow, then you just repeat that thought pattern. And so what I want people to first understand is the thoughts that you're having, that is not you. That's just your thoughts because you can observe them. And the same thing goes with your emotions, right? You're not your emotions. But most people so identify with their emotional state 
that they don't see any separation from it. But we're not our thoughts, we're not our emotions. We're that which is observing the thoughts and emotions. You know, the, the I am, the true self, if you will. You know, consciousness. But if you don't sit with yourself quietly enough, you don't. Be, you can't learn that you're not your thoughts or that you're not your emotions. You 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 think mm-hmm. that you are them. Right. You know, just like people who have success and they have some money, they become that, right? The, you know, they they their reputation, their resume is who they are. And so, you know, we live in a culture when if you say to somebody, "Hey, tell me about you. Who are you?" What I actually do is I tell you what I've done over the last few years, but I'm not telling you who I am right now. You know, I tell you all the things that I did or accomplished as if that's who I am. <laughs> right. So a big question, how, as we're talking about elite mind, how can someone learn how to develop the elite mind? Well, you you can, and again, one of the first things that you have to do is really learn how to observe yourself, right? So your own thought process, your own emotional okay. process. And, you, right. you know, we, we, have, we have this thing called attitude, right? And we talk a lot in sport about attitude, and I would say attitude is really where your thoughts and emotions come together, right? And, and, and the attitude, the beliefs that you have about yourself really ultimately dictate what you do and don't do. And so what you mm-hmm. find is that people who've done these, these great things or people that we call successful or great folks – we tend to think that they're just so very different from the rest of us, right? Mm-hmm. But what's really different about them is they have a different set of beliefs about themselves and what they're capable of. In other words, you're not going to do anything if you don't first think that you could do it, right? You're not going to try to climb a mountain unless you really think you can climb it. You're not going to you know, go and work out and lose 20 pounds unless you really think it's possible to lose the 20 pounds. And so one of the things that's interesting is that people that, you know, who have these elite minds, part of what it is is the things that they believe about themselves and what they believe that they're capable of doing is quite different than the rest of us. But we think the difference is is they have some, you know, unique skill set, right, that they're smarter than us or they're, you know, faster than us. We tend to think that the, the big difference is the physicality, but it's really not. It's the belief system. Mm-hmm. You know, and so one of the things that I try to get people to be honest with themselves is just admit to yourself that you don't really know what you're capable of. You know, mm. that most of us are going to go through our lives and we're not going to do the things that we're capable of doing. You know, I was reading some stuff recently where people who are researching just what the body's physically capable of doing. And they're saying even with like Olympic weightlifters, we probably only lift somewhere around 80% of what the body's actually capable of doing. Wow. You know, and if you think about, you think about running for a second, you know, when, when Roger Bannister broke the four minute mile, Mm -hmm. you know, many years ago, we believed that it was impossible to run a four minute, you know, a sub four minute mile. And as soon as he did that, what happened? Well, then a bunch of other people did it afterwards. Right. You follow me? Yeah, maybe. I'm sure the first time somebody dunked a basketball, people stood around and go, I can't believe that person just dunked a basketball. I remember when I was playing mm-hmm. high school ball in Atlanta, you know, there were like two kids in all of Atlanta that could dunk a basketball. You know, and when you saw it the first time in real life, you're like, wow, that is the coolest thing ever. You know? 
and and so that's really the you know that's really the beginning the inception of that is 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 what do you hold as true in terms of what's possible and what you're capable of doing and mm-hmm. you know we're we're capable of each of us of doing some pretty remarkable and amazing things but if you're going to start with the belief that there's you know something wrong with you or you're not good enough or you're somehow defected then you never get there yeah Mike, like did you go hard. to say something? Yeah, it would seem like the hardest thing for us to learn how to do is the most simplistic thing ever is learning how to get out of our own way. Yes. And and to admit to yourself, you know, I tell people all the time, I say, you know what my biggest problem is? And they go, what? And I go, me. I'm my biggest problem. But most people, they think that somebody else is their biggest problem, right? Oh, yeah. And so what you got to first do is we got to quit blaming <laughs> You know, our parents or the situation that we're in or where we live or how much money we don't have, we got to stop doing that, which is not the truth. And the, and the truth we have to tell ourselves is, is I get in my way. I am my problem. I am the obstacle to my success. And once you really understand that, okay, I'm the person keeping me from living the life that I really would love to live. Yeah. And you have to learn True. to speak that truth to yourself. And then once you can get there, then you'll get to the next step. But that's the first step, okay? You know, we, we live in this victim culture, right? And what's interesting about the language of a victim is they want to always tell you what happened to them, right? That's the story they want to tell. Let me tell you what happened to me today, right? right? And what I want to know is tell me what you did today. Don't tell me what happened to you. Tell me what you made happen, you know? You know, here's what I did today. These were the these were the thoughts that I had. These are the things that I held as true today. These were the actions that I took. You know, these were the ways that I engaged other people. And so we got to get out of this thing of that, you know, our life is happening to us. And we're just this passive responder to it to no, we are you know, we are making it happen. You're 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 making your life up right now. I mean, it, but, you know, people don't even think about when they talk about my future. You know, the reality is your future, when you do future, it's just a thought, right? Because none of us know what's going to happen tomorrow, but yet we're mm-hmm. all thinking about tomorrow. So the reality is, is when you're thinking about tomorrow right now, you're actually making up a story called tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But when people tell you their story of tomorrow, they tell it to you as if it's a factual, truthful thing, right? Here's what I'm going to do tomorrow. Yeah. The fact mm-hmm. is, I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. I may not be alive tomorrow. But anytime you start telling a story about what you're going to do or your future, that is a made-up story. That is a fictitious story. And most people tell the story of their future as as if it's fact and truthful. They don't understand that it's a fiction story. Well, I think they have to be a little older, you know, like you said a few minutes ago about sort of like, you know, we have to go through life and to the point where we get beat up a little bit about it sometime. One of the most famous statements, I used to have a big card in my office that I would share with people. I don't know what happened to it, but it says, yeah. you know, you can't we plan God's last. Yeah. <laughs> that's yours. Mine was, we plan God's last. You know, it's like. We make the plan yeah. that God laughs, you know, that loosens us up to think, well, you know, I do have some ideas about tomorrow, but 
maybe it could be different from that. And that opens a door, opens a window, prepares us for yes. possibilities. And, and, you know, it's okay to have plans, but sometimes we kind of hang on to them a little too tightly, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or we need the plan to go exactly the way we want it to go. But the fact of the matter is, you might not get there the way that you think you're going to get there. You might still get there, but the way that you get there might be very different than the thing that's, you know, in your plan of how you're going to get that's there. Right. Often true. Often true. You know, and, and being being willing to hold that plan loosely. I think that's a really powerful point. Yeah. You know, the other thing I tell people, you know, goal setting is a, a, a pretty interesting topic for most folks. And, you know, when I say, when we talk about it, I see most of the time when we set a goal, we set a goal that we feel like we're pretty much 100% sure we can hit, right? And what I think we should do is we should set goals where there's a pretty good chance that you may not hit it, maybe like a 60% chance of success and a 40% chance of failure, mm-hmm. right? And being okay with that risk, the because the the avoidance of risk or the avoidance of uncertainty that's basically what fear is, right? Right. And what I want people to do is to let's get comfortable with the fact that our life and our future is uncertain and that you're not going to change that. And so don't back away from it. Lean in, lean into that risk and, and uncertainty. And if you will, you'll live a really interesting life. And even if you're setting goals where you only got a 60% chance of succeeding, you're still going to do bigger things than the guy who's setting, you know, a little goal that he's 100% sure that he can hit. Because nothing beats a failure but a try. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nothing beats a failure but a try. Did you make that one up yourself? That's good. No, that's that's some old southern stuff. No, nah, it's not. Yoda said that. Yeah, he, no, he Yoda, said Yoda said it. He said, "Do he thinks that everybody who grew up. He thinks that people who grew up in Texas know most of everything." Well, the people who grew up in Texas, they're they're really proud of Texas. I spent a lot of time in Texas, and I understand. If I was from Texas, I'd be really proud of that too. But uh, yeah, they yeah they 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 got a they got a very strong cultural belief about Texas. Yeah. We think people, most people come out of Texas, we think they're pretty grounded individuals. Yeah. 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 I, I, yeah, I think that's a fair assumption. <laughs> yeah. Stan, Stan, I just want to tell you, you handled that one really good, man. That was great. I like right, how you handled that one. Yeah, you should run for office. No, I love no. Texas. I, I've, I've actually considered He's moving there. Now. They have no state tax. Oh, my God. Well, Stan, I I definitely appreciate you taking time to come join us today Because you definitely gave our listeners a lot of jewels And a lot of good things to think about Good stuff Uh, And and I know I got some great stuff out of it Because we always, you know, planning and saying that we're going to do better tomorrow When we should concentrate on just being the best we could be today And I think that applies um, That's right, Let let go of better yeah, let let go of better. Just do the best that you can, and uh, we're good. We're all good enough to do our best. And you don't need to do any more than your best because you can't do any more than your best. 
And when people really begin to understand the power of that, I mean, then it really starts changing what you do. Mm-hmm. Sounds good to me. I like that. Well, guys, thank you for having me on. Can I can I give some information on how people can oh, get in touch most with me? Def, the floor is yours, yeah. sir. Yeah, my, my website is, is drstanbeecham.com, D-R-Stan, and Beecham is spelled B-E-E-C-H-A-M. Uh, and, the, and the book, Elite Minds, you can get that through Amazon or through the website as well. But uh, if anybody has any questions, I've got my email address on there, and they can reach out and shoot me an email, and I'll be glad to respond to them. I know Matthew and myself definitely going to have to get a copy of the book. Please, please do. The baby needs new shoes. Mama needs a new dress. You too old house, to have a baby. The house needs painting. The house needs You're painting. You are too old to have a baby. I can tell. That's no, too I'm too old for that. Yeah. I'll, I'll put some of that Georgia humor on y'all. The grandchildren. No, hey, look. I, I I understood it, Stan. Uh, I can't speak for somebody else on the phone, but I got it the first that's time. Right. That's right. That's right. You can't. Stan, this has been very useful, and I, I appreciate it. Um, Lamont and I both, we, you know, we have listeners. Of course, we have listeners, but the first goal is we have to enjoy the person that we're talking to. You know, we've got to get something for ourselves out of this, you know. So we both appreciate yeah. you for that and sharing with us about it. And I think if we feel like we've got some useful, meaty things for ourselves, then I think people listening are going to feel the same yeah. way. Well, thank you for saying that. You know, my feeling is we, we can talk about things that are serious, but we don't have to be serious. You know what I'm saying? And I, I tell people all the time, you know, like with athletes, I say take take the sport seriously, but don't take yourself seriously. You know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to pour your life into something and do it well. But the minute we start taking ourselves too seriously or we try to talk too seriously about it, you know, then, then we, you know, we, we lose the joy of it. I, I, I think true. I think the people who are having the most fun are also getting the most done. Mm-hmm. Stan, have you ever ran across a Robbie Wells? I have not. A, what is he? He was, he was a presidential candidate. He was running as an independent. Okay. No, I'm not familiar with him. Oh, was this okay. in the last election? Uh, last year. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just curious. Yeah. Why did you ask him that question, Lamont? You know Robbie Wells is in witness protection. He wouldn't be known to, to speak. No, actually, his, his, his home. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, I I know a few few I know a few Dan, good I think people in high places. Come back and do some consulting here about doing your best. Some people know don't know about people your best. in high places. Uh huh. Yeah. You know, people argue with me all the time about the best model because they don't want to give up better. And I just say, you know, like the business person, I said, well, what would happen to your business if everybody who worked for your company came in tomorrow and did the best they could? You know, or, or say to a coach who wants to keep, you know, singing the better song, what would happen if all your players played their best, what would happen? We'd win every game. I said, exactly. You know, we're scared <laughs> yeah. to death of that. That's funny. Well, I, I think it's a great thing. I think it's really great. 
We're just about out of time here, gents. Thank everybody, and we'll see you guys next week at the same time, 2.30, PST, Matthew, Lamont. Love y'all. See you later. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. I enjoyed it.